American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell, tell me, me about, about the time. American Timelines. American Timelines. We're coming for you. A fucking American Timelines. We're a podcast. We don't give a shit about anything anymore. We already started. No, this is not. That's how we intro American Timelines, American Day. Time for sunshine coming away. Amy's a bitch and she hates birthdays. My name is Joe and you listen for me. All right. Okay, they listen for you. Are you ready? Yep. Welcome to another episode of American American Timelines. I'm Amy. And my name is Joe. And I am a jackass. That's, yes. I'm a son of a bitch is what I am. All right. This is episode 106. Okay. Yeah. Can you stop yelling? I'm not yelling. I'm just emphasizing the coolness of episode 106 of American Timelines. Okay, what's the first the item that, that we're going to talk about? Chronologically through time. We're in the we're in tells 19 you about Shush. interesting things. Amy will go deep on a murder or a UFO abduction, and I will tell you what was on TV during that. Don't didn't you always want to know what episode of Mork and Mindy was on and when somebody was getting their eyeballs scooped out? All right. Shh. 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 And we are talking about 1967. We are. And we're in October. We are in October. We left off at the end of September when uh, Hannah Milhouse Nixon died. Right. She was 82. Right. And that was a true crime story. And what's the first thing we're going to talk about now? Monday, October 2nd, 1967, Mm -hmm. Thurgood Marshall was sworn into office. As the first African American justice of the United States Supreme Court, we That's mentioned a good we thing. talked about him. Yep. Yep. And Jillian Welch was born, American country singer songwriter. Okay. Do you know her? No. Tuesday, October third, nineteen sixty seven. Flying an X fifteen experimental aircraft, U.S. Air Force Major William Pete Knight made the fastest flight of a powered aircraft at a speed. You want to guess the speed? Was it like Mach three or something? No, duh. Mach 6.72. Oh. Do you know how many miles per hour that is? No. Take a guess. When am I going to take a guess? <laughs> a billion. Okay, you're way off. I know. I'm going to overguess you just because you're being an asshole trying to have guess. F- it's only, it's not even very fast then, I guess. It's only 4,520 miles per hour. Wow. 4,520 miles per hour. Yeah, that's crazy. How quick could they get from here to That's crazy. Cancun. Ten minutes? I don't know. Do the math. I think it's about ten minutes. The mark remains unsurpassed. Mm-hmm. That same day, North Vietnam rejected a proposal by U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson with his dick out to discuss peace. The decision was announced in the Hanoi newspaper, Nahandan. <laughs> okay. Han Dan. Mm-hmm. Also that same day, Carl B. Stokes became the first African-American to win a primary election for mayor of a large American city, defeating incumbent Mayor Ralph S. Locher of Cleveland mm-hmm. in the Democratic primary. Stokes would win in November against Republican candidate Seth Taft. 
Also, Woody Guthrie died at age 55. Malcolm Sargent, a British orchestra conductor, died at age 72. And Phil Colvig, no, Pinto Colvig, 75-year-old American voice actor, known for being the original voice of the Disney character Goofy, died. A guy named Pinto? Pinto Colvig, okay. y'all. That's interesting. Yeah, you should name your kid Pinto Colvig. I don't think so. Pinto Colvig, y'all. October 4th, 1967 was a Wednesday. Okay. Have you ever heard of the Shag Harbor UFO incident? Yes. Hmm. Surprising you're not covering it because that occurred on October 4th. Why didn't I cover 1967. it? 1967. I think I had a pick. Or did you already cover it? And this is just one of the things. So this occurred know. in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia on the 10th anniversary of the Sputnik launch. As an illuminated object, 60 feet in diameter, descended from the sky and disappeared beneath the waves in front of numerous witnesses, including a constable of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. A Canadian Coast Guard vessel rushed to the impact point and found a thick yellow foam, 80 feet wide at the crash site. Acting on the possibility that the object had been a crashing airplane, Canadian Navy divers conducted a four-day search of the harbor for wreckage, but found nothing. Yeah. That's according to Wikipedia. Yeah, that's it's pretty spooky, I would say. Yeah, there's probably not a whole lot more information about that, though, mm-hmm. don't you think? Yeah, it's not a very long story. Yeah. Uh, that same day, the cliche of a bull in a china shop mm-hmm. was played out literally in the town of Chester, Pennsylvania. Uh-oh, antics. Yep. Three steers escaped from Medford's Inc., a slaughterhouse and meatpacking plant, and caused a considerable amount of damage to the china and other valuable items in a downtown jewelry store. Oh, my God. The three animals raced a few blocks up Market Street, now Avenue of the States, and onto Edgemont Avenue, then charged into the Morris Jewelry Store. No people were injured, but the steers smashed display cases on their way back out. Poor things. Bulls in a china shop in real life. Poor things. Yeah, well. Escape the slaughterhouse. I hope they didn't get slaughtered, but I'm pretty you, sure. You probably ate their meat. Jeez. You probably ate a burger of them. Jeez. Sorry. That's what you get for eating meat. Feel bad. You're more likely to eat it than I am. Also, the same day that that bull in the china shop scenario and the UFO thing happened, mm-hmm. Lee Schreiber was born. All right. You know where Lee Schreiber was born? No. San Francisco. Duh. And that same day, mm-hmm. somebody died who might be reincarnated as Lee Schreiber if it works like that. Claude C. Block, an 89-year-old U.S. Navy admiral. All right. Thursday, October 5th, 1967. You love it. You love it. You love deaths and birthdays. Do you know who the whiskey robber is? No. On October 6th, 1967, it was a Friday, Attila Ambrus, a Hungarian folk hero nicknamed the Whiskey Robber for his predilection for drinking whiskey before carrying out his heists of banks, post offices, and other businesses during a six-year career between 1993 and 1999, was born in Phytod, Romania. Hmm. Okay. You don't know who that is? No. We should have covered that in the 90s. We'll have to redo the 90s anyway. I know. The 90s were pretty slapdash. Yeah, we were still learning how to Mm -hmm. be podcasters when we did the 90s. But then Saturday, October 7th, 1967, film actress Elizabeth Taylor. Are you familiar? 
Yes. She escaped death by a matter of seconds while in Sardinia for the filming of the Universal Pictures release, Boom. Hmm? You ever heard of that movie? No. Taylor had just stepped out of a trailer that served as her dressing room in the hills of the Porto Conte Natural Park when the vehicle's brakes and safety blocks failed, sending it plunging over a 150-foot-high embankment and into the Mediterranean Sea. She was in it or what? She just stepped out of it. Oh, man. Right before that happened. That's crazy. The world would not have known anything about Liz Taylor except who's friend of Virginia Woolf. Because she's already all done those that, marriages, right? all the other stuff. Well, she'd already gone through several of those marriages by the time "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf" came along. Touche. You had, win this round. <clears throat> she'd already done like four of those marriages, I think. Yeah, but four marriages compared to 175 mm-hmm. plus being an accomplice to Michael Jackson's many, many rapes. I don't think that. Did she have something to do with that? No. Was she friends with Michael Jackson? Yeah, but I don't think she. You don't think she seduced people? I don't think she knew. Set up victims? I don't want to think about it. She's dead, No, she's dead. Okay. Also, that same day, Tony Braxton was born. All right. In October, Sunday, October 8th, 1967, guerrilla leader Che Guevara was captured by the 2nd Battalion of the Bolivian Rangers. Mm -hmm. Only 17 guerrillas were left when the Rangers surrounded them in the El Euro Ravine near La Higuera. Guevara ordered his men to split into two groups and attempt to fight their way out. Minutes later, a bullet grazed Guevara's leg, and he was unable to run. The distraction from the excitement of his capture allowed the other men to escape. Now, I'm not going to ask you any questions about this story. Okay. And here's why. Oh. Because... You seem upset. I know that... You're related to Che Guevara? No, I know that neither you nor I know anything at all about Che Guevara, even though we know we should know. (laughs) And so if I ask any kind of probing questions, we're both going to look like the hugest idiots. So what do you attribute this to? The fact that we don't. I don't know. But we should. But it's like when we talked about the Iran-Contras and stuff, it's like the same thing where we're like, um... I know I that event. No, it's really important, and it's just always been too. I know it's good. something to do with maybe is it migrant farm workers? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Che Guevara. I always, you know, I always knew anybody wearing the Che T-shirts. Right. Were always cool. Right. It was like a cool person that knows gets that yeah. whole thing. Oh yeah. So it must be a really cool fight the power thing, but yeah. I've just never. I have no idea. But guess what? I will know soon. Oh, you will. You know why? Why? Because Robert Loggia was in the movie Che. Oh, really? In the 70s, I think. Oh. There was one in the 70s and then one in the 2000s. He played something. Che Guevara? No, he didn't play I che was going to say. No, he played one of the... He, he played... Uh, I just watched the preview. He played... I can't remember if he played one of Castro's guys or one of Che's... I think he played like... Who cares? Anyway, Nobody cares played, what so, anyway, Robert, Robert Loge is in, in that movie. <clears throat> I almost watched it last night, but I can't find it for free anywhere. They want two ninety nine for it. I don't. I just don't uh, want to pay three bucks for another Robert Loge movie. Please don't. But the thing I'm finding is like Robert Loge's early career. Mm-hmm. He played. He was an Italian guy, right? So the first couple yeah. movies he plays Italian guys, like he's an Italian. Yeah, that's right. Boxer thing, but a lot of those movies he plays Mexican guys. He plays a Native American. 
and then right, he but just that's plays what Cuban. They did. They just, yeah, because they wouldn't employ real yeah. Mexicans and Native Americans. They, it just made me really sad, and then made me think maybe I should suspend not, my Robert Loggia. Yeah, maybe do festival somebody else because Robert Loggia contributed to not allowing minorities to work. Mm-hmm. But then, but maybe he's just a symptom. You know, it's not Robert Loggia's fault. Is he supposed to not take the job? Right. He's a struggling actor, I'm sure. Right. Who also, knows, Robert Loggia died in 2015. These kinds of questions about the universe, we will never have definitive answers to. Robert Loggia died in 2015. Stop. So, okay, anyway. Back to Robert Loggia no. as a podcast. Let's start our podcast about Robert Loggia. Right. want to do that? No, we're not going to do that. Okay. You're going to an- read the next fucking thing. Whoa. Uh, a whole other thing about Che Guevara... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just skip it. I thought you were going to cover him so we knew all that, what happened. No, I didn't. I covered something much more important. Just you wait. I will wait. Monday, October 9th, 1967, <laughs> a cyclone struck the Orissa State Orissa State in India, yeah. killing 531 people mm-hmm. and leaving almost 1 million people in the Kudak and Balasore districts homeless. The storm arrived without warning shortly before noon and continued for more than 10 hours. Where was among this? Among the casualties. India. Okay. Among the casualties. India always has a bum rap when, when it comes to India's stuff. rough. Yeah. It's got to be rough to live in it's India. It's always like weather extremes and, yeah, and, and all the so many it. people and it's supposed to smell real bad. Well, if there's a lot of people in small Amount of land, land. and be. then all the cows can just walk around and shit everywhere, and nobody does anything. No, well, why would you? Among the casualties of the flood were 38 people. We probably just offended somebody. I know from the Maharashtra <laughs> State Transport <laughs> bus that was washed away by floods about five miles outside of Corey. Now, here's the thing: this so bus got. I'm just laughing through the fact that a whole bus of 38 people just got or 60 passengers. Just got carried away in this in this storm. It's crazy. Uh, but no, we're not trying to be offensive to Indian people. I love Indian people. I do too. Some of my best friends are Indian people. They are. Yeah. Name them. I got Vina. Yeah, Vina rules. Vina, if you're listening, shout out. Sorry, we disparaged. Uh, She'd Your probably she'd think it was funny. Yeah, she would. And I work with folks that do the, uh, the festival of India every year. And they have some really cool culture, yeah. dance, yeah. the dance in their... I have a um, student who's Indian and I who I love, like my own child almost. That's good. <laughs> Welcome to American Timelines where we <laughs> defend ourselves against racism. Like, we give you all the reasons we're not racist. I know a Asian guy, yeah, I swear. You can cut all this out. That Asian guy likes me. I always talk to the people at the Asian store when I pick up the Chinese food. I always say hi to them. They're all white kids. Yeah, that's true. Not all of them. Also, that same day, 35 of the 40 crew on the freighter Panoceanic Faith. Oh, that's easy. Panoceanic Faith mm-hmm. died after the American ship suddenly sank. Nearly all the deaths were from hypothermia because the men on board had time to launch only one life raft before the boat was capsized by 20-foot waves. The freighter was 870 miles from Kodiak, Alaska, when its skipper radioed for help. A Japanese ship, the Igaharu Maru, picked up two 
picked up two survivors. <laughs> so I was yawning. And the Norwegian ship Vaisund saved the other three. That same day, Eddie Guerrero was born. American professional wrestler is born in El Paso, Texas. He died of heart failure in 2005. Okay. And then Tuesday, October 10th, 1967, Gavin Newsom, the 40th and incumbent governor of California and San Francisco, was born. Stop. The day after Eddie Guerrero, yo, October 11th, 1967, was a Wednesday. The body of Che Guevara was buried in an unmarked grave by the Bolivian Army at the airfield in Valle Grande. Mm-hmm. Prior, prior to his burial, the hands were severed at the request of gov- the government of Argentina for mm. comparison of his fingerprints to Argentinian police records to verify his identity. Yep. The burial site was then paved over with concrete to build an airport runway. Almost 30 years later, the skeletons of Guevara and five other people would be found on June 28, 1997 in the excavation of the burial site and would be returned to Cuba after being positively identified. All right. Sure would be more helpful if we understood what was happening. Him I a know. little more. I, know. I really thought you would have been all about him. Oh, mm-hmm. he did this and that and I have a chaser. No, he's not he's not one I've ever thought of like gotten into. What's next? Do you want to know about expansion teams of the National Hockey League? No. <laughs> I will skip that, much to the chagrin of beautiful Brian McCartney, our favorite listener. He doesn't care about that. Well, Anyway, October 11th, 1967, Peter Sinertia was born. He was an American professional wrestler. He was born in Brooklyn, better to, better known as Taz. Artie Lang, the comedian, was also born that day. And Stanley Morrison died, British typographer. Stop who designed all the people numerous that were born fonts, and died. <laughs> including t- the guy who made Times New Roman died. You got to know that. God. What if you're on a game show and this they say. This podcast would be 10 minutes long if you would stop that. What if you're on a game show and they say, what year did Stanley Morrison, the British typ- typographer who designed Times New Roman, pass away? You'd be like, 1967, y'all, because I listen to stupid, crappy American timelines. Thursday, October 12th, 1967, Cyprus Airways Flight 284 crashed into the Mediterranean Sea while on its way from Athens to Nicosia. <coughs> Wherever that is. Killing all 66 people on board. Comet Jet had 59 passengers and a crew of seven, was an alti- was at an altitude of about 29,000 feet, and was 13 minutes away from its destination when an explosion sent it pummeling. Mm. Falling five miles, the jet struck the water near the Greek island of Kastelorizan. That's exactly how you say it. Traces of an explosive were found in one of the seat cushions, suggesting that a bomb had been placed beneath one of the passengers, but no theory for a motive was ever confirmed. Mm-hmm. Do you think that? Do you think that bomber was a little bit disappointed? Like nobody even knows why he did it or who he was or anything. Like wasn't isn't the point to let everybody know what you did, what your cause was, why you blew up a plane? Yeah, that's what I've always thought. Guess what? Nobody knows. That same day, the St. Louis Cardinals defeated the Boston Red Sox 7-2 to win the World Series in the deciding seventh game. Bob Gibson, who had pitched the Cardinals to wins in Game 1 and Game 4, allowed only three hits in winning Game 7. Do you know Bob Gibson personally, since you're from St. Louis? No. 
All right. Um, well, the Cardinals won their second championship in four years at this point, and they're eighth overall. Uh, but this is most famous because of the Bush family. Are you familiar with the Bush family? The Anheuser-Busch family? Yeah. Yes. Gussie Bush, Gussie Bush the chief executive officer of uh, Cardinals owner Anheuser-Busch and president of the team, threw a lavish party mm-hmm. for his Red Sox counterpart, Tom Yawkey, when he came to St. Louis for the games there. Mm-hmm. When Bush learned that Yawkey would not be reciprocating the favor for game six, he flew many members of his family and personal friends to Boston on company-owned private jets. At the Ritz-Carlton Hotel downtown, he reserved a banquet hall and, along with his guests, entertained Massachusetts Governor John Volpe, Volpe and mm-hmm. his wife as guests of honor. And despite the Cardinals' loss, the evening was marked by considerable revelry. You know, the um, Bushes are partier. The Bushes traditionally concluded such affairs with a food fight. Did you know that at each no, party? No. Waiters dodging thrown rolls wondered aloud how the family would celebrate the following evening should the team win. The question was answered the following night when the Cardinals won the series. This time, Bush and his wife went up the elevator to the ballroom ahead of their other guests so they could take the fire extinguishers off the wall and spray down the others. Ultimately, this did $50,000 worth of damage to the hotel, which Anheuser-Busch paid out of its advertising budget. I don't even know what's happening. The Bush family. uh, Who did I say? Not Augie Bush. Gussie Bush. Mm Mm-hmm. And his wife went up to celebrate the Cardinals winning. Oh. And they took fire extinguishers off the wall and sprayed everybody when they got to the party. That's very high-powered hoses. Yeah, they did $50,000 worth of damage to a hotel. Jeez. And they paid for it because rich people don't give a fuck. That's right. U.S. Secretary of State Dean Rusk announced during a news conference that congressional proposals to start a peace initiative would be futile because of North Vietnam's opposition. Mm-hmm. And then The Naked Ape by Desmond Morris was first published. Okay. You familiar with that book? No. <laughs> Why is that a I thing? don't know. Friday, October 13th, 1967. U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson, with his wiener out, signed Executive Order 11375, expanding affirmative action programs to women in an effort to end gender discrimination within the U.S. government once and for all. Yes. The federal women's program was established from the order to enhance opportunities for women in every area of federal employment. And thus, gender discrimination was defeated officially forever yeah, in right. 1967. And there's not been any inequality since. Yep. In a perfect world. That same day, the American Basketball Association, a challenger to the NBA, played its very first game. Willie Porter of the Oakland Oaks scored the first ABA points, and the Oaks went on to a 132-129 win over the Anaheim Amigos at the Oakland Coliseum in front of 4,828 fans. That same day, 25 people died and 18 were injured when the bus they were in fell into a ravine near Izmir in Turkey. Oh. I keep all these bus accidents. There's just a million Million. bus accidents all the time. Well, and... In an airplane, you keep the on The 60s crap. just crashes after crashes. Yeah. Uh, October 14th, 1967 was a Saturday. Yeah. Hello? Yeah. It was a Saturday. That's right. 
The Holland America line became the first cruise line to abolish tipping aboard its passenger ships and freighters. The company instead raised the wages of its employees and the cost of a cruise to passengers. Okay. That same day, the Chicago Bulls, the 10th and newest franchise of the NBA, played their very first game. Mm-hmm. The Chicago Bulls. You heard them? Yes. Played their first game. And they lost the Celtics. October 15, 1967 was a Sunday. Mm-hmm. 20 partygoers in the Philippines were killed and another 40 injured when the bus they were on Jeez. fell off of a bridge in the municipality of Kataraman, North Samar, and fell into an into the night river oh, man survivors said that the bus driver who escaped the bus and fled the scene had appeared to have been drunk see that's the thing you should i don't i'm getting the impression that you shouldn't drink and drive yeah I'm, i think you're right on that monday mm-hmm. october 16th 1967 that's not my birthday so don't say it is that was the day you were born it's the day, but not the Stop year. Stop the Draft Week was launched in front of the induction centers of 30 American cities by thousands of people protesting against the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. At Oakland, 600 demonstrators blocked the entrance of that city's center, including folk singer and activist Joan Baez. Baez. There we go. She was one of 125 people arrested. But I, she was I knew by I was going to get it, that one. Joan you did? Because one time you're going to add. I knew finally there would be a time when I was right. Because every time you say Joan and you want me to guess, I've said Baez. Is that true? I've said, I've yeah. asked you to say Joan before and you've said Baez? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Finally it's right. Well, I know you're the president of the Joan Baez fan club. <laughs> uh,. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff. There was a lot of a lot of people were burning draft cards. A hundred thousand mm-hmm. cards were burned during the week. Uh, by the end of the war, six hundred thousand men had violated the, their selective service laws, with only three percent actually prosecuted. That same day, forty-two people, most of them women, who were on a sightseeing tour of Buddha, Buddhist temples in South Korea, were killed. Ooh. When their bus plummeted off a 40-foot cliff. And where was that one? Near Kimchon. Korea? Is that what you said? South Korea. Oh, my God. The driver and the other 10 passengers on board were seriously injured. That bus driver was probably drunk. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, Tuesday, October 17th, 1967, the first rock musical, Hair, premiered at the theater inside the Astor Library in New York City's East Village, featuring... A multiracial cast of hippies and attracting attention with the full frontal nudity of the cast to close one scene. The show combined the music of Galt McDermott and the lyrics of James Rado and Jerome Ragney mm-hmm. and was sold out for each of his performances during a six week trial run. It would also become the first off Broadway musical to transfer successfully to Broadway. Uh, yeah. Would you do it? Would you be in here if you could? No. Do all the men have their junk out? Yeah, I think everybody's nude. Are you supposed to have... Uh, this is what I don't understand. Are you supposed to have a boner? No. You're not supposed to have a boner? No. What are they doing in the nude? Are they like singing or are it's they a, it's, sex? It's all hippies. I think they're dancing around. With your balls just flying around? Probably. I've never seen hair. <clears throat> I don't know. I guess maybe. Would you be upset if I did? You don't care. <laughs> 
<laughs> you have to practically do that every night in the bedroom anyway. What are you? What are you saying? A, a musical number me of, in the nude. I don't. I don't want anyone to see me in the nude. Oh my god! Anyway, nobody wants to know. You don't want to bring out our air our dirty laundry. Nobody wants to know it. Wednesday, October 18, 1967, students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison demonstrated over the over the efforts of Dow Chemical mm-hmm. used the university campus for recruiting new employees. 76 people would be injured in the ensuing riot. Man. You know who went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison? No. Friend of the show, Melissa Thompson. Oh, I thought she went to... Isn't that where she went? I thought she went to... Something Madison. They were in Madison. A, a different place in oh. Wisconsin. Mm. Mm. Anyway, uh, baseball's American League owners voted to allow the Kansas City Athletics, owned by Charles O. Finley, mm-hmm. to relocate to California as the Oakland Athletics, starting in 1968, and to expand from 10 teams to 12, no later than 1971, by adding a new Kansas City team, the Kansas City... Taters. You really think there's a team called the Kansas City Taters? <laughs> Maybe. What colors would they wear? What would be their Brown. logo? A tater. A tater? That's not a bad <laughs> idea. It's the Kansas City Royals. Oh, yeah. And uh, they added a team in Seattle, the Seattle Pilots, mm-hmm. who would later relocate as the Milwaukee Brewers. According to a later account, the move of any team required two-thirds approval and only got six of seven votes on the first ballot with Baltimore against and three abstaining. But the New York Yankees added a seventh vote on the next round. Walt Disney's 19th full, that same day, Walt Disney's 19th full-length animated feature, The Jungle Book, mm-hmm. the last animated film personally supervised by Walt Disney, was released. It would become an enormous box office and critical success. I love that one. You do? Yeah. I n- never saw it till I took the kids. Until to you it. had kids. I, mean, I knew some of the songs and we had a record yeah. or something. I never. They just didn't. I didn't have a. You didn't. I didn't just, want to. Just wasn't a. I just. I'm not racist like you. So. What? October nineteenth, nineteen sixty seven was a Thursday. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter's daughter Amy Carter was born. October twentieth, nineteen sixty seven was a Friday. Guilty verdicts were returned against Neshoba County, Mississippi Deputy Sheriff Cecil R. Price Mm -hmm. and six other defendants for violations of federal civil rights law in connection with the 1965 murder of three civil rights workers in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Another eight defendants were acquitted, including Neshoba County Sheriff Lawrence Rainey. Sons of bitches. The trial was held before an all-white jury in the U.S. District Court in Meridian. The defendants received yep. sentences ranging between three and ten years in prison. <sighs> Surprised you don't love that because it's a murder. Don't you love it? Murder lover? No, it's awful. Good. Good. You're finally getting a conscience. You shush. October 20th, 1967, the same day the guilty verdicts were returned against Neshoba County, Mississippi Deputy Sheriff Cecil R. Price that we talked about. But you have something that happened on that same day, I understand. So, yes, I, I'm covering something much more substantial, much more um, important in a historical lens than the Che Guevara story. The Che Guevara death? Death, yeah, death of Che Guevara. Okay. Bigfoot 
also known as Sasquatch, what? is said to be a giant ape-like creature that roams the northwest of the United States. There is scant evidence such creature exists, but Bigfoot buffs are convinced they do, and science will one day prove it. While most sightings occur in the Northwest, the mythical creatures have been reported all over the country. Most famous image of a Bigfoot is from a film taken in 1967 by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin in Bluff Creek, California. This is so the, the video that you see. Yes, this is the story. Of the Bigfoot video. The Bigfoot video. Ooh, I've always wondered about this. So this, um, in the video, it shows this huge, dark, man-sized, man-shaped figure kind of lumbering yeah. around it looks like a woodland a, clearing. Yeah, it's too big to be a gorilla. It, yeah. And it walks like a man. Right. Um, you know what? Honestly, it looks like Big John Stud. Does it? Well, oh, yeah. it's widely considered a hoax. It remains to this day the best evidence for the existence of Bigfoot. Right. So, um, as the story goes, in the early afternoon of Febu- uh, of Friday, October 20th, 1967. Which is that, well, we've that already day. talked about it's the same day. Also the same day that Shigeru Yoshida, 89-year-old Prime Minister of Japan, mm-hmm. uh, died. Okay. Um, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were both up there looking for Bigfoots. So they, just so you they know, already thought they're this Bigfoot existed. hunters. So this wasn't a hey, we're camping. What the hell's that? Yes, correct. It was a correct. There is a thing called a Bigfoot. Right. They w- they went where they heard there was sight other sightings, and they were oh, trying so there, to hunt. The so Bigfoot. there was already it was already a story. It yes. was already a story, but no other pictures or anything. Right. Correct. Okay. Um, I think there might have been other footprints. Yeah. And there might have been other maybe still photos of something or another, but there but was no, no video. video. So it, this is early afternoon. They're riding horses. Okay. Generally northeast on horseback along the east bank of Bluff Creek. I got no problem with horses. At some time between 1.15 and 1.40 p.m., they came to an overturned tree with a large root system at a turn in the creek, and it was almost as high as a room. This big roots of the tree that had fallen over. It was as big as a room? It was as high as a room, yeah. The root system was so high. Like a bedroom. Like tall. It like was very tall. Why that, is that? This seems like an odd thing to compare it to, a All right. room. So then they when they when they round this big thing, yeah. there's a log jam uh, like left over from the flood of 64. And then they okay. spot this figure behind it nearly simultaneously. It was either crouching beside the creek to their left or standing there on the opposite bank. Gimlin later described himself as in a mild state of shock after first seeing the figure. Okay. Patterson initially estimated its height at six feet six inches to seven feet tall, and then later okay. raised his estimate to about seven feet six inches. Oh, that's really big. That's bigger than Andre the Giant. Well, and Gimlin's estimate was six feet. Originally. Okay. The film shows what Patterson and Gimlin claimed was a large, hairy, bipedal, ape-like figure with short, silvery brown or dark reddish brown or black hair covering most of its body, including its prominent breasts. They were prominent? Oh, yeah. Like it's got big boobs. Like actual boobs. Yeah. Not just Big boobs. No, they're big old boobs, and they're real hairy. Really? Yeah. 
Man, that's my dream come true. <laughs> okay, so. Everybody like a hairy boob. Pa- Patterson estimated he was about 25 feet away from the creature at his closest. He, okay. He said that his horse reared up, sensing the figure, and then he spent about 20 seconds trying to get himself out of the saddle. And control the horse and then get around to its other side and then get his camera from the saddlebag then he, before he could run toward the figure while operating his camera. So it was all kind of a... Yeah, that's got to be hard. And that camera could not have been light or easy to get going. He yelled, cover me to Gimlin, meaning to get his gun out. And Gimlin crossed the creek on horseback after Patterson had run well beyond it, riding on a path somewhat to the left of Patterson's. Then, rifle in hand, he dismounted but did not point his rifle at the creature. The figure had walked away from them to a distance of about 120 feet before Patterson began to run after it. Wow. The resulting film at the beginning is shaky until Patterson gets to about 80 feet from the figure. And then at that point, the figure glances over its right shoulder at the men and Patterson fell to his knees. And he would later characterize the creature's expression as one of contempt and disgust. So yeah, and that and you see this, right? This is what you see on film well, as it walks by or not. That it that's even later. Oh. Shortly after this point, the steady middle portion of the film begins, containing the famous look back frame three fifty two. Right. That's the big that's one. the yeah. picture that you see. Um Patterson said it turned a total of three times, he thought. The other um times before the filming began, or while he was running with his finger off the trigger. Shortly after glancing over its shoulder on film, the creature disappeared behind a grove of trees for 14 seconds and then reappeared in the film's final 15 seconds after Patterson moved 10 feet for a better vantage point. Yeah. And then he faded into the trees again and then was lost to view at a distance of 265 feet as the reel of film ran out. So Gimlin then remounted his horse and he followed it on horseback, and he tried to keep his distance until it disappeared around a bend in the road 300 yards away. Okay. Patterson then called him back. He was like, help me. I'm, I'm over here on foot without a rifle. Yeah. And, you know, he, he was getting scared, so he called Gimlin back. And then um, the entire account, the, but the entire encounter had lasted less than two minutes. All that had happened in less yeah, than two minutes. All that now, yeah. When and when it's really happening, it probably seems like an hour, but mm-hmm. it that happened so fast. Next, Gimlin and Patterson rounded up Patterson's horses, who had run off in the opposite direction, and then Patterson got his second roll of film from his saddlebag and filmed the tracks. Oh, so yeah. then they okay, went and they saw they his went, tracks, yeah. and and they um, had gone. They tracked it for one mile or, or three miles, but lost it in the heavy undergrowth. So then they went to their campsite. Picked up, they had plaster that they had brought with them to for tracks. Yeah, so they, they went and they got that, yeah. returned to it, made the plaster casts. So then, right after that. How long does a plaster cast take to harden? You said harden. <laughs> All right. At about 6.30 p.m. then, Patterson and Gimlin met up with Al Hodgson, who was at his general store in Willow Creek, which is about 55 miles south. Patterson decides to ship the film to his brother-in-law, so he calls him after shipping the film. Then they head back toward camp where they had left their horses. Yeah. On their way, they stopped and called the newspaper in Eureka. Then they arrived back about midnight. And in the morning, they covered the Bigfoot tracks with bark. Hey, is that is that the origin of the phrase, Eureka, I think we've got it? No. Oh. No. 
Okay, so then U.S. Forest Service worker Lyle Laverty went to the site on Monday the 23rd. Lyle Laverty, y'all. And took six photos oh, of the he, tracks. He went on what day? The 23rd. October 23rd? Yes. Oh, he went to check out the tracks the same day that a laboratory technician at the Hammer Mill Paper Company in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, killed six of his co-workers and wounded five others after an argument with members of his carpool. Leo Hold, who was also a member of the county school board, drove to the factory and began shooting with a 38 caliber automatic pistol, then wounded another member of the carpool who worked at a local airport. From there, he returned to home, then murdered another co-worker who lived across the street from him. Police captured Held after a shootout with him in his backyard. According to survivors, Held was angry because of an argument a few weeks earlier when the other members of the carpool refused to ride with him because of his dangerous driving habits. Held would die of a pulmonary embolism two days later. That same day? Oh, my Lord. Same day that that happened? Yes. The that same awful day that murder? Happened. Yep. Yep. This time I have the awful murder. You did. That was good. So then, meanwhile, Patterson w- went and got the film developed. Yeah. And um, he thought, "Oh, I've got proof. You know, I'm gonna. This is gonna turn yeah, the world on its edge." Yeah, changing it all. Yeah. But then he couldn't even get any scientists to even look at it. Because they all just think he's a quack. Because he's yeah. saying it's a Bigfoot. Yep. Um, but he still was able to capitalize on it. He made a deal with B- the BBC. They okay. used his footage, and he appeared on a few popular TV show talk shows. It totally looks. The video looks to me like a. A suit. Well, so Patterson sought publicity. Gimlin was real hush-hush about it, and he only briefly helped promote the film. Um, now, which one had the camera, Gimlin or Patterson? Patterson was the one who, who had, took, the had the camera. Gimlin, Gimlin was, was the other guy. So Patterson wanted the publicity. Yeah. Gimlin didn't. Right. And um, in 1969... Um, Patterson hired a pair of brothers to travel around in a truck chasing down leads to Bigfoot witnesses and interviewing them. Like he, for the rest of his life, was obsessed with it. Patterson? Yep. And he died of Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1972. Um, and maybe that was, maybe Hodgkin's lymphoma is a disease planted by the Bigfoot. And on his deathbed, he said, um, he wished he would have just killed it instead of just taking pictures of he it. He should have shot it, yeah. That's what he said. Because um, they'd have it. So the w- one thing is the whereabouts of the original film is unknown. At least seven copies were made of the original film, but nobody knows, nobody knows where the it. original one is. Yep. And the, there's just a couple like things that people say on this side and this side that when yeah. they look at the film. And I sure. just was going to go through those. Yeah, that's great. So the filming speed is one of the things. So Patterson said he normally filmed at 24 frames per second. Yeah. But in his haste to capture Bigfoot, he didn't note the speed at the time. And then afterwards, the next time he looked at his camera, it said 18 um, frames per se- second on it when he looked at it. Okay. So he doesn't know if it was 16 or 18 frames per second. But if it was filmed at 24 frames per second, where like he normally filmed it, then you the creature just looks like a human's walking. But if uh, it was done at 16 or 18 frames per second, yeah. then the walk is very unlike a man's gait. And experiments were done where people walked quickly over that creature's path, and yeah. no one could walk that distance in 40 seconds. It was, it as was impossible. As fast as it could, because it's so big. Because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't. 
walk like an animal at all. It walks like a dude. Yeah. Right? Right. But um, neither, so, and one of the things, one of the things naysayers say is that neither humans nor chimpanzees have hairy breasts. And that's one thing. Um, There was um, Dmitry Donsky was the chief of the Department of Biomechanics in the USSR. He um, looked at it and he did conclude the creature was non-human on the basis of its weight and its gait. And really, he said he he inferred the film's subject was weighty because of the ponderous momentum of he observed in the movement of its arms and legs, and the sagging of the knees as weight came on to it, and then the flatness of the foot. Huh. He said a very massive animal that is definitely not a human being. But then um, there was another scientist who said that the color of the bottom of his foot is like the, the his the palms are black but the bottom of the foot was like a light color and he said there's no mammal whose palms are a different color than the planter side of the foot which is the bottom of the foot okay so that really? was so that was kind of a thing where it's like maybe it is fake but then um let's see there was another guy that talked about his locomotion, the figure's stride, his center of gravity, his biomechanics, the width of the creature's shoulders. Uh, Andre, the, so the creature's shoulders are about almost 50% wider than the human mean. So, so those are some people that think, yeah, maybe that they are, they're convinced it's real. But yeah, then let's hear the naysayers. There now. were some naysayers. This one zoologist um, thought the creature was a human in a suit. Yeah. He said his hair flow pattern was too uniform, and the hair yeah. on the breasts are not like a primate. And the his retreat from the men was too calm. Yeah, like he's just walking away. Yeah. Like and he would be running or something. He conceded the Bigfoot evidence in general supports the existence of the cr- uh, of the creature, but the film was not genuine. So he, yeah, he he's that. not saying that there is no such thing as Bigfoot. He's saying actually the... There's ev- enough evidence to suggest there is, but yeah. this particular video is not it, that evidence. Okay. Then there was another guy. Oh, I already talked about him. There's another guy who um, exposed an object when he like zoomed in yeah. where he thought he saw the zipper of the suit. Yeah. And so they went back and forth with the special effects. But then, then there was a special effects department at Universal Studios who tried to um, fake and recreate the video. Yeah. And they said they couldn't do it. They said if it's a man in an ape suit, it's a very good one, a job that would take a lot of time and money to produce. Yeah. And that's one of the things that people say um, in 1967, the special effects just weren't that good yet. Yeah, because if you look at Planet of the Apes, which came out yeah. before that, the yeah. early 60s, I think, the first one, that was terrible. They right. were terrible. But this looks like a Planet of the Apes suit. Like, it looks like they, because they had a couple of them. There's a video I'm looking at. But the size. OBP.org that shows a couple of Planet of the Apes without their clothes on. It looks just like that. It does. But. But it's, what about the size? But the size, yeah, it's huge. But, but I think like you said, like, those special effects were terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 67. So I was just trying to think, like, did somebody, 
Is there a, is it a homeless guy that just has a gorilla suit left over from Planet of the Apes that's living in the woods or something? Or Well, Patterson and Gimlin both denied they had perpetrated a hoax. But in 1999, telephone interview, Gimlin said um, that for some time he was totally convinced no one could fool him. And of course, I'm an older man now, and I think there could have been possibly a hoax. But it would have been really well planned by Roger Patterson. Yeah, so he thinks even he wasn't in on it. Right, right. And the film um, proponent's position is that what is seen in the film is unfakeable, especially not by a costume beginner like Patterson. For instance, detailed examinations of the film features they argue could not have been created with 1967 special effects technology. Um, And then there was an anthropologist. But that's the thing. It's like you you can't fake that, but you can go to the moon. What? The technology is not good enough. You, but you think the moon's fake too? I don't think that. Good. Oh my! Just I checking. Do. I don't know if I do because can, think of how primitive technology was in the '60s. They can't even make a VCR, but they can go to the fucking moon. How's that possible? Yeah, I, I know. don't know. Maybe. Don't don't be a. Oh God! Don't. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. That so, it. um, then there was an anthropologist who was cynical about his luck he's like oh geez he goes out to make a movie about bigfoot and they happen to find find a bigfoot but then some people said he well he was going where there it had been reported that other people had seen it so right you know and then there was another guy who wrote that both men he interviewed both patterson and gimlin and he he said both men lacked the intellectual capacity to produce such a hoax yeah <laughs> which idiots. was like boom i would think though gimlin though if he wasn't in on it yeah and the other guy had that and gimlin had the gun mm-hmm. you wouldn't do that because he could potentially shoot it like you don't know what gimlin's going to do in that situation if he yeah. panicked and thinks it really is and yeah. if it's your buddy in a suit like He's you, gonna shoot him. That's true. That's very, very good point. I so have a good point. Then in two thousand two, Philip Morris. That's the same year we got married. The owner of Morris Costumes, which is in a North Carolina company. Yeah, I've uh, bought, I've purchased uh, costumes from oh, okay. Morris Costumes. So he claimed that he had made the a gorilla costume that was used in the Patterson film. Ooh, really? He says he discussed his role in the hoax. At a costume conventions, lectures, and magician conventions in the 80s, but first addressed the public at large on August 16th, 2002, in Charlotte, North Carolina's radio station, WBET. WBET? Yeah. Are you kidding me? His story was also printed in the Charlotte Observer. Oh, we are recording live from Charlotte, North Carolina. Morris claims he was reluctant to expose the hoax earlier for fear of harming his business, giving away performer secrets. Would yeah. be widely regarded as disreputable. Get them on here if he's still around. Morris said that he sold an ape suit to Patterson via mail order in 1967, thinking it was going to be used in what Patterson described as a prank. Yeah. After the initial sale, Morris said that Patterson telephoned him asking how to make the shoulders more massive and the arms longer. Morris says he suggested that whoever wore the suit should wear football shoulder pads and hold sticks in his hands while within the suit. Ah. Uh. But. Um, Morris offers no evidence apart from his own testimony. There's no paper trail or anything. And there, and there's also, um, a conspicuous shortcoming of being the absence of a gorilla suit or a documentation that would match the detailed evidence in the film and could have been produced in 1967. 
So. What? I don't understand that last sentence the way you said it. Oh. There was a lack of. The, what? The, there wasn't a gorilla suit that matched that in 1967. Even though Morris says there is? Right. They don't think he's telling Basically. the truth? Then Bob Hieronymus claims. Bob Hieronymus? Bob Hieronymus claims to have been the figure depicted in the Patterson film. Oh, great. Pro- Hieronymus says he has not previously publicly discussed his role in the hoax because he hoped to be paid eventually and was afraid of being convicted of fraud. Um, but then he spoke to his lawyer, and whose who's lawyer said since he had never been paid, he could not be held accountable. So that really? was um, a month after watching the December 28, 1998 Fox television special World's Greatest Hoaxes, Secrets Finally Revealed. He went public via a January 30th press release by his lawyer, Barry Woodward, in a newspaper story. He said, I'm telling the truth. I'm tired after 37 years. So Hieronymus um, says... How do you spell Hieronymus? H-E-I-R-O-N-I-M-U-S. Huh. Anyway, okay. I'm trying to find the guy, but there are two um, Morris and Hieronymus kind of contradict each other, though, yeah. because like um, Hieronymus said that he thought it was made out of horse hide and it stunk real bad. And but Morris says he made it out of Dinell, which was this wide, lighter weight synthetic material with no odor at all. Oh, really? And then also um, Hieronymus said that it was too pieces that the top he put on like a t-shirt and then he pulled on the pants um and also that the hands and the feet were connected to the suit but morris said that it was like a union suit yeah but the hands and the feet were detached and you could put them on so those were differences in how they how they describe it so they kind of contradicted each other but the weird thing is um Hieronymus and Patterson, are you listening to me right now? Yeah, yeah. Um, both have taken lie detectors and passed. So, but they're saying opposite things. I know. That's why lie detectors aren't. Isn't that weird? No, not really, because they're not conclusive, right? So that's kind of the story of the Bigfoot That's kind video, of the story. 1967. So, Morris, what is Morris Costumes guy's name? What Morris? Frank, is it Franklin Morris? Phil Philip Morris. So I bet we could get Morris costumes. Uh, people like the family of that guy. You think they're going to want to talk about that? Yes. Okay. Even if it's just for a minute. Yeah. Get course, like the, their son or whatever. Yeah, of course we're putting this out Wednesday, so. I don't think that's too late. Happen. Maybe we can it's have a good idea later though. Episode. Yeah, I wish I would have known it was in Charlotte, but that's crazy. So the day after that film allegedly took place, mm-hmm. October first, twenty first, nineteen sixty seven, seven, mm-hmm. uh, "Lulu to Sir with Love" was the number one song on the Billboard charts, mm-hmm. and protesters requested a permit to levitate the Pentagon three hundred feet in the air through songs and chants to exercise it of its evil and end the Vietnam War. Protesters wanted to levitate it. What? They requested a permit to levitate the Pentagon 300 feet in the air through songs and chants to exercise it of its evil and end the Vietnam War. Oh, my God. Authorities agreed that they could only levitate it three feet. 
According to SmithsonianMag.com, uh, this article by Peter Manso, uh, late in the evening of January 14th, 1967, a few of the people responsible for turning the seventh decade of the century into the cultural moment known as the 60s were lounging in a small back room of the artist Michael Bowen's San Francisco painting studio. Allen Ginsberg sat cross-legged on the floor of 1371 Haight Street, passing a bottle of wine with another beat-turned hippie, the Zen poet Gary Snyder. Timothy Leary, the former professor remade as the nation's highest priest, the nation's high priest of LSD, was also there, as was the anti-war activist Jerry Rubin, who would soon join with Abby Hoffman to start the Youth International Party, better known as the Yippies. When it came to announce plans for the protest to be held in late October, 1967, Rubin declared that they would shut down the Department of Defense because the anti-war movement was now in the business of wholesale disruption and widespread resistance and dislocation of the American society. Hoffman elaborated with a description of the exorcism rite they would perform to end the war, declaring, we're going to raise the Pentagon 300 feet in the air. Another march organizer, Keith Lamp, uh, said, we didn't expect the building to actually leave terra firma, but this fellow arrived with ideas of how to make it happen. So they they think that they did it? The ritual conducted at Pentagon on October 21st, 1967. Uh, wait, after a gathering before the Lincoln Memorial for anti-war speeches by luminaries, including the poet Robert Lowell and the nation's baby doctor Benjamin Spock, tens of thousands began to march across the bridge to Virginia. Norman Mailer was on the scene for the entirety of the protest. The smell of marijuana, sweet as the sweetest leaves of burning tea, floated down to the mall, Mailer wrote, where its sharp bite of sugar and smoldering grass pinched the nose, relaxed the neck. Once they had assembled before the Pentagon, where military police and federal marshals, marshals were waiting to keep them in designated protest areas, organizers distributed a leaflet program for the ritual. Mailer reproduced it in his book, Armies of the Night, other existing versions are less poetic, so there were either multiple programs available that day, or Mailer has added his own literary flair. On the makeshift altar before the Pentagon, meanwhile, a number of competing rituals began simultaneously to unfold. Ed Sanders of the rock band The Fugs delivered an impromptu, sexually suggestive invocation punctuated with repeated calls of Out Demons Out!, Hoffman had his own ideas about the necessary elements of an exorcism. He busied himself pairing up couples to perform public displays of affection that would surround the Pentagon in communal love, while Mayan traditional healers sprinkled cornmeal and circles of power, and Allen Ginsberg declaimed mantras for the cause. <laughs> Michael Bowen trucked in 200 pounds of flowers and distributed them to the crowd. When military police and marshals confronted the protesters, images of gun barrels blooming with mm -hmm. daisies became the iconic photographs of the day. Mm -hmm. While the building never did get off the ground, the ritual inspired by Bowen and his far-off guru John Starr Cook in some ways succeeded, particularly as the witty media project most of the organizers believed it mainly to be. Fifty years later... A ritual levitation of the Department of Defense enacted by Hoffman, Ginsburg, Reuben, Bowen, and thousands of others is rightly recalled as one of the most unusual acts of political theater in American history. It's also worth remembering that at least some gathered around the Pentagon that day actually believed it would fly. That's I'm surprised they never did a dollop on that. I bet, that's, I bet that could be a really good story to delve into. Yeah. 
I bet that was better on a better podcast. <laughs> that's not what I meant. That's a great story for a better, better podcasters. No, I'm not. Yeah, that's I, not. What I'm I just meant. basically reading that from a yeah. Smithsonian Mag article. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what we could say that after everything we talk about. Yeah, that's true. Well, we just covered the Bigfoot thing. You could listen to a better podcast about that. <laughs> Somebody who's better at this. Yeah, you're right. We're just doing it for fun. Mm-hmm. And then October twenty, that same day that. That Pentagon levitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh no! The next day, October twenty second, Sunday, nineteen sixty seven. Carlos Mencia was born, and then Monday, October twenty third, nineteen sixty seven, was when that murder happened at the Hammer Mill plant. We talked about that, and then Tuesday, October twenty fourth, nineteen sixty seven, U.S. Army Lieutenant General Lewis B. Hershey, the director of the Sele- Selective Service Program. Issue the first of two memoranda that would collectively become known as the Hershey Directive, ordering draft boards nationwide to draft anti-war protesters into the armed services. The memo directed that a young man who had burned his draft card should be reclassified as Class 1O for being delinquent. Mm. So basically they were basically just trying to force they everybody were, yeah. into the war yeah. who was all the hippies. Mm-hmm. And then October 25th, 1967, in Arcadia, Florida, all seven children of migrant farm worker James Joseph Richardson, ranging in age from two to eight years old, were fatally poisoned after eating a lunch that had been prepared for them before Richardson went to work. Richardson would spend 22 years in prison after initially being sentenced to the death penalty for the children's deaths, but would be exonerated after evidence was discovered that the children had been poisoned by their babysitter. After being released on April 25th, 1989, following evidence of prosecutorial misconduct in the 1967 trial, Richardson would later be paid $1.2 million by the state of Florida for his wrongful imprisonment. God, you hope 22 so. 22 years in jail. Can you imagine? Oh, my God, no. And then Thursday, October 26, 1970, U.S. Navy pilot John McCain III was shot down over North Vietnam and taken prisoner. Oh, yeah. We all know about John McCain. Mm-hmm. Uh, he became a prisoner of war for more than five years, uh, turning down a chance of being set free early before finally being released on March 15, 1973. He would later be elected the U.S. Senator of Arizona and be the Republican candidate for president in 2008. Meanwhile, while he's being shot down, Keith Urban was being excreted from a womb. Oh, God. All right. And then Friday, October 27, 1967, Father Philip Berrigan, a Roman Catholic priest in the St. Peter Claver Church of Baltimore, broke into the city's Selective Service office and poured blood into 16 file drawers as a protest against the Vietnam War. Oh, my God. Berrigan, who was sent to jail, was joined in the attack by Reverend James Mingle of the United Church of Christ, Thomas Lewis, and David Eberhardt of the Baltimore Interfaith Peace Organization. Oh, my God. So all these different pastors from yeah. all these different denominations like, came together. Yeah, like peace, trying to end this war. Mm-hmm. That's cool. That's awesome. Scott Weiland was born that same day from Stone Temple Pilots. And then Tuesday, October 31st, 1967, we're going to end this episode on the greatest human being of all. Amy's obsession was born, Robert Van Winkle was born in Dallas, Texas. Oh, my God. Is that Millie Vanilli? No. (laughs) Ice Cube. Ice Ice Baby. What's his fucking name? Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice. Never confuse Ice Cube with Ice Baby. (laughs) Sorry. Ice Cube would be so upset. I know. So would Ice T even. Yeah. 
But I love that you think his name is Ice Ice Baby. <laughs> <laughs> From now on, that is his name. Yeah. But you thought he was Millie Vanilli at first, too. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Millie Vanilli Ice Ice Baby. Vanilla Ice and Vil- v- Millie Vanilli. Yeah, Vanilla Ice name. was born in 1967. Did you know that? No. Now I you know. Care. I know how old he is and when he was born. Oh, my God. I still don't care. Robert Van fucking Winkle. That guy sucks. He's like a makes. He flips houses now or something. Something like that. He was funny in, he was in some Adam Sandler movie. He and Todd Bridges were like working at like a, a, a yogurt shop or something yeah. or something like that. It was very funny. But I mean, I like that he's willing to make fun of yeah. what a ridiculous joke he was. Anyway, that's October of 1967. All right. That's American Timelines episode 106. Thank y'all. We got to get, hopefully the next episode will get through 67 November, yeah we, December. we got can to. we get two months in one episode we gotta do it yeah we gotta we gotta cut out some of the fat cut some of the fat some of the fat yeah maybe we could just reduce our podcast to a couple sentences like hey this happened at this time go listen to another podcast about it <laughs> yeah and hopefully like, they'll yeah. make a good one yeah we'll just yeah it'll be better than us all right <laughs> yeah listen to somebody who's better at this thank you for listening thank you we love everybody who listens. I love listening. Dan Briggs. We love everybody who listens. By the way, we love all of you. Thank you for listening. Shannon Hauser is listening. She told me I didn't know she's waiting. Shout out. I love everyone. Peace. Love ya. Matt Truman. Anyway, brother. Come on, Matt Truman. Kick ass. Listen to Matt Truman Ego Trip. Follow him on Facebook and watch him. as a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. American hey, Rick. Yeah, Kale. That sure was a great episode of American Timelines, wasn't it? One of my favorites. What's your favorite? Is it the true crime or is it the history of pop culture? I like the history stuff because numbers confuse me. Uh, I like the true crime because I can't stand listening to Joe talk. <laughs> Fair enough. But you know what? If someone likes this show... They should really check out our show, yeah. the podcast from hell. Oh yeah, we're on that show, and I do it. That's right. You're the producer of the show, and you are a demi demon, and I am the host of the show. I'm uh, someone who was damned to hell to record a podcast for all eternity. Each week, we have interesting guests, all from the realm of hell. That's amazing. It's a hilarious, funny podcast, and everybody should check it out. Don't you think? I do think. All right. Hey, Kale. Well, yeah. Check out my booner. Okay, that's enough of that. All right, Let's put it, put it down. Uh, yeah, keeping it real for the kids. The podcast from hell.